You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Good morning, everyone. My name is Amanda. I'm the associate pastor here at the Peak, if we haven't had a chance to meet already. And as you've just seen, we are finishing up a sermon series we've called Mixtapes. So over the last four or five weeks, we've been asking the question, how does God speak to us in music? All of our best thinking, all of our deepest theologizing tells us that God is speaking to us constantly, all the time. And so because of that, we have to trust that God is speaking to us through music, right? If you're anything like me, you listen to music all the time. And so we have to know, we have to trust that God is speaking to us even there. And so we've listened to God in uh, pop music and in rap and hip-hop and in the oldies and in last week was punk rock. Uh, And so this week we're kind of changing gears a little bit. We're kind of shifting a little bit to ask the question, how is God speaking to us through classical music? And when I started to ask this question myself, it made me think about um, a moment that I had growing up with one of my pastors back in the day. I am sure that it will surprise no one in this room uh, to know that I was an especially precocious teenager, (laughs) especially when it came to things of faith. So I was constantly firing off emails to our pastors, asking them these deep theological questions of things that I was wrestling with when I was in, you know, fourth grade or whatever. So those are the things that I was concerned about when I was um, 10. (laughs) Um, But this, this particular occasion happened when I was about 14. So I had just completed confirmation class, which is a moment in the life of young people who grow up in the church where they get to learn about the faith and then sort of own it for themselves, right? We actually celebrated this with our own confirmands a few months ago. And it's, it's an important moment for most people, but it was especially important for me because it was the first time that I learned that I had spiritual gifts, right? Which is just the churchy way that we talk about the skills, the abilities, the talents that God gives uniquely to each of us, right? I didn't even know that I had that. Um, and I learned about it. And so they made us take this super long assessment. It was kind of intense uh, for middle schoolers, but I was all about it. I was all about it. And I got my results. And number one, wouldn't you know, my first spiritual gift was pastoring. 14-year-old Amanda did not like that very much. In fact, I laughed. I thought it was funny. I was like, this assessment's broken. It doesn't make any sense. That is foolish. Um, Just some advice for you. Don't ever laugh at God because, well, I mean, here we are. So uh, note self, don't laugh at God's plans. It doesn't go well for you. Or it does, depending on how you look at it. (laughs) So that same spring, there had been this young woman who uh, was in our church and was really well-known, and she experienced a call to ministry. And so she had applied to seminary, um, and she was going off to school that fall. And she, um, on a Sunday morning, kind of just like the video that we just watched, she shared her testimony with the congregation, and she said, you know, I've experienced this call, and I know what God is asking me to do, and the paths have just opened up, and I know exactly what it is that God has said to me. And 
I just remember sitting in the congregation thinking, what in the world? Um, I was someone who was just starting to hear that maybe I had the gifts that um, kind of line up with the work of ministry. And so I was expecting um, something like this to happen to me. But the way she talked about it, it it sounded like God had picked up the phone and called her and said... I need you to do this, and then this, and then this. I mean, she was so certain, and God had spoken to her so clearly. And that really troubled me, because at age 14, God had never spoken to me before, or at least so I thought. So I was deeply disturbed. I was talking to my parents. They were like, we don't know how to help you, you weird kid. Uh, They were like, why don't you talk to the pastor? So I emailed the pastor. Um, sent him just the longest email. And those of you who email with me, you're like, "Mm, checks out, checks out. (laughs) Long email. Those of you who get emails from me regularly are like, yes, that is exactly an Amanda move. So I told him all about my spiritual gifts. I sent him the assessment in an attachment. I was like, I need you to help me figure this out because it doesn't make any sense because I don't know if God is calling me because God never talks to me. This pastor who was one of the busiest people I have ever met in my entire life, took the time to write me the most thoughtful response. Um, And it really made all the difference for me, by the way, obviously. Here we are. Dear Amanda, he said, it's really exciting to hear about your spiritual gifts and to see in depth all of them in this assessment that you've shared with me. (laughs) And that you're, you're thinking about God's calling on your life. That's exciting. And he did a little teaching, too, which was so helpful. He's like, did you know that actually God calls all of us? God calls every single person. God has gifted every single person, not just some special group of people who go into ministry, but everybody. God calls everybody, and the way that we can answer that call is by utilizing our gifts in service of the church and of the world. So I was like, oh, (laughs) I did not know that. Um, But then he said, uh, sometimes, in order to tell us something really important, God first has to get our attention. God has to figure out how to speak in our language, right, in order for us to listen. So for some of us, he said, like the young woman that you and I both know, she's really quiet, she's shy, she doesn't really speak up very often, she's very thoughtful. And so for her, when God was calling her, the best way to get her attention was to speak and to say, this is what I want you to do. This is what you need to do, to speak so clearly that she couldn't doubt it. She couldn't say, oh, this is just my own heart, my own thoughts. But for the Amandas in the world, he said, (laughs) for whom there is never a shortage of words to think about or say or write in a really long email, um, which, by the way, this was his very pastoral way of saying, girl, you talk a lot. (laughs) Sometimes he said God has to get creative to get our attention. Sometimes the quiet voice of God, this still small voice that might speak to us um, in ways that we would never expect, sometimes that is the way that God has to get our attention, especially for those of us who are never talking or who are never not talking, right? Those of us who can't pause long enough to listen. Then he said, in my experience, it, it often requires us, when we experience what feels like silence from God, it requires us to stop, to pause, to rest, and to start to listen with our hearts instead of just our ears. Seems like God has got your attention, he said, so I guess you better get to listening. What I learned that day 
is something that I believe the psalmist who wrote our psalm for today already knew. Uh, Much like some of the others that we've read recently, this psalm was written to be sung. It is a song. There are musical instructions in the margins and in the header. If you've looked in your Bible, maybe you've seen some of those. And it says that this psalm was written for the music leader according to Jeduthun. Um, And so what this tells us uh, is that this was a psalm of David. And the way we know that is because the Hebrew word Jeduthun, just a little lesson for you, uh, means praising, to praise, right? To sing kind of to God. But it was also the name of the chief musician in the court of David, right? So why am I telling you all this? The reason that we know it's a psalm of David is because of that. It mentions a very specific guy who's talked about in the book of First Chronicles, which, by the way, if you ever need something to put you right to sleep, just open to First Chronicles. It'll get you there. But I promise he's in there. You won't make it to that point. You'll be snoozing. But he's in there. He's in there. So all of this means uh, that this is a psalm of David, which means that David might have actually been the author of this psalm. And he wrote it for this guy, his chief musician, to sing and to play in his court. And knowing that makes me wonder, what situation in David's life prompted him to write this psalm. One of my favorite things uh, that scholars do with the Bible is they look at the life of David and they say, um, you know, this is, this is one of the psalms of David, and we think maybe he wrote it after this happened, right? It, it lines up with his experience. It gives us context for these psalms, these songs in which he's pouring out his heart. He writes, "'Only God is my rock and my salvation.'" my stronghold. I won't be shaken anymore. But honestly, it seems like there's a lot to be shaken by in David's life at the moment, right? When we read the rest of the psalm, he goes on to say, the only desire of this people is to bring others down low. They delight in deception with their mouths they bless, but inside they are cursing. Maybe this was written during the time when young David, who had already been anointed to become the next king of Israel, was threatened by the current king of Israel, Saul, this man who he looked at like a father. He looked up to him. He loved him. And Saul, once he learned that David had been anointed to be the new king, threatened David, threatened to kill him. So David had to flee. He had to leave Israel for years to avoid being killed. Maybe it was then that he wrote this psalm. Maybe It was when David himself was already king and and the northern and the southern parts of Israel were sort of warring with one another, the civil war that was happening as he was leading. Maybe it was then. Maybe it was written around the time when we all know the story. David lusted after Bathsheba and had her husband murdered and then slept with her, maybe without her consent. Maybe that was when he wrote this psalm, or maybe it was after one of his own children, his sons, plotted to murder him so that he might ascend the throne in David's place. Maybe it was then. Another part of me wonders, though, if maybe, just maybe, David wrote this psalm on an ordinary day. An ordinary day in which it seemed like all of the world was demanding his attention. What if it wasn't a crisis? What if it wasn't some special thing that prompted him to write this? What if it was just life beating him down? I, 
I'm pretty sure that David was wealthy and powerful, that he had all the privilege in the world as the king of this nation. And so maybe in some ways uh, we can't understand, right? We're not governing a nation, thank goodness. Um, We are not in charge of anything quite so vast. But many of us understand what it's like to have the weight of the world on our shoulders. We all have so much responsibility. Maybe for you, it's a job that demands all of your time and your energy and your passion. And you come home at the end of the day exhausted. Maybe it's your family. Maybe they need all of your time and your support and your love and your energy. And you are home at the end of the day exhausted, right? Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something internal to you, some burden that you're carrying. Maybe that's the thing that leaves you exhausted at the end of the day. But I also don't want you to forget that, you know, we're not ruling a nation like David was, but we have a lot that he doesn't have to deal with, right? There's a lot about our lives that David would have no idea how to handle. Thinking about, I don't know, all of the things that are just thrust into our view all of the time, this social media world that we live in, this 24-hour news cycle world that we live in where every disaster, every little bit of breaking news is pushed at you all the time. So not only are you bearing your burdens, you're bearing the burdens of the whole entire world. And we're just not built for that. We're not made to do that. And that's why when we read Psalm 62, it hits home with us, right? When Julie was reading, I was just thinking again, golly, this psalm gets it. The person who wrote this understands. Only in God do I find rest. Other translations say, only in God does my soul find rest. What a way to live. What a way to exist in this world. There's only one place where we can find rest, and most of us don't even know how to find that place. Most of us don't even know how to get there. That sounds exhausting. That sounds like people who are at the end of their rope. And yet it also sounds like a lot of conversations that I've had with you over the last couple of years conversations in which you've told me about this bone-deep fatigue that you feel, the relentlessness of this world pushing in on you, the restlessness that you feel within yourself, unsure of what's next for you, unsure of where God is in all of this. We know too well about what this psalmist is saying. They're talking about what we already know to be true, that the burdens of this life are so great that we all have this deep desire and in some cases this deep need to find places of rest for our souls. That is true for all of us. So it makes a ton of sense when we think about the fact that King David or whatever poor exhausted soul wrote this psalm meant for it to be a song. It meant for it to be sung. The psalmist intended for this music to be an invitation into the kind of rest that God can offer to us. When we can stop ourselves, when we can pause long enough to seek it out, music for both the psalmist and for us can be the vehicle that we need to enter into the rest that God can offer to us. And I actually think that classical music can be that conduit for us if we let it. 
So um, just a little bit of uh, musical definition here. So classical experts might uh, debate with me on this. Uh, but classical music can just simply be that which is played in a more traditional style. So by a symphony or an orchestra or by some other combination of instruments, right? Um, strings, brass, wind, etc. Often but not always, this is music without words. Music that focuses on these movements, right? On evoking feelings and images and thoughts by the power of sound, not just by the power of words. In my experience, if we let it, this kind of music can be powerful. It's kind of like the modern American composer Aaron Copland said. He said, so long as the human spirit thrives on this planet, which I don't know how much we're thriving, right? But okay, <laughs> we're with him, we're with him. As long as that's happening, as long as we're alive on this planet, we might say, music in some form will accompany and sustain us. I love that word he uses there, sustain. That's what I feel when I read Psalm 62. That's what I feel when a swell of truly magnificent music just sort of rushes over me, sort of piercing through right to my heart, right? It ushers me into this place of rest, to a place of awe and wonder, a place that invites me to set down all of the distraction and responsibility and pain and fear that I might be holding in any given moment, set it aside and just be. One of the pieces of wisdom classical music offers to us is that sometimes the best approach to navigating life in this world is that it's less about doing and more about being. More about being with God. Classical music invites us to cease to stop our striving and our struggling and our performing and just be. Now, all of that is well and good, but maybe classical music isn't your thing. When I started talking about it, I could see some of your faces just start to glaze over. It's not really your thing. Maybe you're like Pastor Kyle, who had to Google classical music in order to figure out what songs to add to our staff playlist this week. I was like, four seasons, really, that's all you got? Did you Google classical music? And that was a joke, but then by his face, I could tell that's exactly what he did. So maybe that's you, and that's okay, that's okay. But if you can suspend your preferences for just a minute, I think we really can get at the heart of what God might be saying to us, might be speaking to us through classical music. For example, I had the opportunity to go to a string quartet concert with my small group this past week, um, and it was so much fun. And I was reminded again of the power of this kind of music. This is us. Um, up there were very orange because there was like a thousand candles in that room. And thankfully, they were not real because I kicked over like six of them accidentally. Um, so yeah, fake candles, um, but it was so cool. It was such, a, such an experience, right? And as they played this music, I felt myself just pause. I had a crazy week. I was running around trying to get everything done. I hadn't even checked in with myself all week. And this music gave me the opportunity to stop and to rest and to let this, this feeling, this experience wash over me. 
their set list was really powerful. It made us feel so many different ways, and it seems important to tell you at this point, um, before you get the idea that our small, small group is like super highbrow or very fancy, um, this was a string quartet that was exclusively covering the music of Disney movies. So it's pretty nerdy, pretty nerdy. And yet even with that expansive and exciting variety of songs, even then, there was something within me that was quieted. Maybe the better word is just stilled. Even as we were listening to the greatest hits of like Beauty and the Beast and Mulan and Frozen. <laughs> so maybe, maybe uh, Disney movie quartets aren't your thing. That's okay, it's a pretty niche thing. <laughs> Um, but I know you know the kind of power that this music has on us. Because if I show you this picture, what do you hear? Yes! Bob Picasso coming in clutch. That's right. The music for Hogwarts. And then if I show you this one, what do you hear? <laughs> That's it? All right, and then what about this one? Last but not least, what do you hear? So many sounds. I don't even think you can make those sounds with your mouth. It's okay. <laughs> right? Um, this music has no words. It doesn't say anything, but it speaks to us, doesn't it? It makes you want to be. Um, it makes you want to be a wizard, or a Jedi. <laughs> Pastor Kyle was really upset with me after the last service because I said a space person. He was like, girl, it's a Jedi. Come on. Sorry. A wizard, a space person, slash Jedi, an elf, right? You're like totally into it. It totally brings you into the story and you feel it so deeply. If you've ever watched a movie without music, you know how awkward it is. It's so weird. You can YouTube it, like search your favorite movie and say like movie without music and you'll be like, this is so uncomfortable. But the music is what gets you into it. It makes you feel Music like this helps us know how to feel what's inside of us. Sometimes it teaches us to speak the language of our own hearts. We don't have words to say. It's like the famous composer Ludwig von Beethoven said, which I practice his name a lot so I wouldn't mess it up. Um, he said, music is the mediator between the spiritual life and the sensual life. Right? And what he means by that is that music like this helps us know how to express ourselves, sometimes sad and sometimes hopeful, sometimes consonant and sometimes dissonant. This kind of music, classical music, orchestral music, instrumental music, even music without words, can offer us a kind of rest that all the poetry and all the lyrics in the world can never quite get at. And this is the kind of rest that appears to be at the very heart of our psalm for today. In those musical instructions that we see in the margins, uh, there's a word that's repeated there. It's the Hebrew word selah. Selah. You can see it um, up here circled. It's after verses 4 and 8. Selah. And Hebrew scholars, they don't actually know exactly what that word means, uh, but from context clues, they've kind of put together that it's a musical stop. It's a rest, it's a breath, a pause. Selah, God reminds us in this psalm. Stop, breathe, rest. How long will we attack one another? 
How long will we tear each other down like leaning walls or broken down fences? We pray with the psalmist today. Selah, God says to us. Stop. Breathe. Rest. How long must we abide these people who bless with their mouths and curse inside of them with their actions? We sing with the psalmist today. Selah. God reminds us, stop, breathe, rest. How long do we have to feel shaken, rootless, ungrounded, just jerked back and forth by the crazy movements of this world? We wonder with the psalmist today. Selah, God says to us, stop. Breathe, rest. In the face of the ever-changing, ever-demanding movement of this world that keeps on spinning with or without us, stillness or rest before God is a rare thing. It's an act of resistance against a world that never offers us space to feel, to know what's going on inside of us, inside of our hearts, It's an act of resistance against that. It is a holy act of resistance. This is one of the reasons why I think so many of us find ourselves feeling just dissatisfied or restless. We're just untethered. We're just sort of moving along with whatever comes. Whatever happens to us just owns our feelings. It owns our emotions. And we are hoping or we're needing really for something or someone to offer us peace in the midst of all of this. Even those of us like us who have so many privileges, we still experience it, that feeling. And what the psalmist would tell us is that finding peaceful rest is an absolute necessity if we want to survive in this world, if we want to have any chance of holding on to ourselves, if we want to have any chance of holding on to God. In a world where As David would say, we're surrounded by people whose only desire is to bring others down, people who delight in deception. In this world, we must find ways to still our hearts, to quiet our minds, to rest our bodies. And in doing so, we will be met on every single side by the God who is our refuge. When I was in college, I, I took this theology class with one of my favorite professors who was like, he was a cool professor, you know. He made us call him by his first name, and he wanted class to be like a conversation instead of a lecture, and he always sat on the table, the desk at the front, instead of standing like a normal person. And we loved him for it. He was great. And we spent the semester reading all kinds of foundational and systematic theology wondering together about all of these different concepts or ways of thinking about God. And so we wrote all of these essays, we completed all of these projects, we read so many books and so many articles, and we covered a truly impressive number of theological topics, right? We were just little expert theologians after that semester. I don't think I've ever read so much or written so much in my life as I did in those three months of time. We discussed it all, we talked it out, we learned all of the fanciest theological terms with which to talk about it. And at the very end of the semester, 
on the last day of class, we all came in. He was sitting at the desk like he normally did. And he just waited. We're all sitting there. It's time. It's past time. We're staring at him. He's staring at us. And we're all just squirming, right? We're a bunch of 20-year-old kids. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know what he's doing. It's making us nervous. Nothing is ever quiet in college, right? There's always something loud. And so the silence just, we're so uncomfortable. And eventually he said, we've spent the last several months reading and thinking and writing and saying every possible word that there is to say about God. In many ways, you will spend your whole lives, he told us, using words in every which way you can to try to find the meaning in all of it, the meaning of God, the meaning of life, the meaning of who we are. You're going to spend all of your time, all of your thinking and all of your speaking will amount to millions, if not billions of words spent in your um, in your mind or as you're speaking, right, over the course of your life. You're going to say so much. And at this point, we were starting to get a little nervous uh, because it was a little overwhelming what he was saying. We did do all of the things that he was saying. We had spent the whole semester doing that. And as young as we were, we, were, we had convinced ourselves that now we knew everything there was to know about God, right? We were like, check, took the theology class, got it. I totally understand God. I know all of the elements. I've read all the books, written all the papers. I know God. Uh, we were fools. We were fools. And he told us that. <laughs> Our whole lives, he told us, we can say what we will say, all that we can. And at the end of it all, we will still never even come close to grasping or understanding all of who God is. Not even a little close. So far. In fact, our words might take us farther away <laughs> from who God is. We were all like, are you kidding me? <laughs> we spent the last three months doing all of this stuff and you're saying it didn't matter. That had me thinking, he said, what if instead of heaven as this place of eternally praising God, of people from every nation and tribe and tongue singing all the right words to perfectly capture who God is. What if instead of that, heaven is just the place where we stand before God, utterly silent and still, and just behold the fullness of the divine? What if after all of our struggling, all of our pontificating, all of our arguing, what if after all of our movement and resistance and pain, what if after all the words that we can think to say over the course of our lives, heaven is just the place where we are finally, truly, fully at rest with God? What if after everything is said and done, there's nothing left to say, there's nothing left to do, except just to be to simply witness the overwhelming goodness of God. He stared at us for a little while. And then he hopped up, smirked, and walked out the door. And we all just kind of looked at each other. We were like, what just happened? But the longer we sat there together in the silence the more we started to think that he might be right. The more we started to realize he had told us some good news. And that good news is here for us this morning too. 
The good news is that there's always an invitation for us to participate in that kind of heaven. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.